baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and it's time for our chat about the Atlanta Braves and what else is happening across the world of Major League Baseball for this week. Got a lot of interesting topics happening on the baseball front, and of course, it's been a kind of a fun week in Braves country as Fox Sports Southeast has been re-airing the 1995 World Series. We've had a lot of fun reliving that, I think, over the past week, and we're going to do it a little bit more here on the podcast as my special guest Ryan Klesko will tell me all about what it was like to be a member of the 1995 World Series champion Atlanta Braves. So looking forward to catching up with him as the show goes on. Also happening on this episode of the show, Bill Rowland will check in and we'll talk about Major League Baseball's latest scenario for the 2020 regular season. It involves all 30 teams, but only three divisions, so be sure to stick around after I talk to Ryan Klesko as we go in-depth on what Major League Baseball could look like when and if they can get back to play here in 2020, and we're hoping that's more of a win than an if, of course. Before we get to that, I want to remind you, if you have not already, you can subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and those reviews. Keep those coming. They're very much appreciated. Also, if you like what you hear, be sure to share From the Diamond with a friend. On social media, you can find the show on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore. You can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can find Bill Rowland on Twitter as well, at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, at From the Diamond with no underscores, where you can find the show. And I am on Instagram as well, at Grant McCauley. And everything, including every episode of the show and much more, is available for you at FromTheDiamond.com. So with all of that plugging out of the way, it's time to jump into the show. And leading things off for us, a member of the 1995 Atlanta Braves. And he's been right along with the rest of us, reliving this series as those games have been airing each night on Fox Sports Southeast. My guest at this time is Ryan Klesko. Ryan, I appreciate all the time, and I really look forward to this trip down memory lane we're about to take. Yeah, me too. I'm learning new stuff about all the games, too. It's been so long, and, you know, you have certain memories of, you know, maybe your first hit or your first home run or whatever, uh, the first win. But, it, man, I just love – there's a lot of stuff I forgot, you know, and, and so this is really cool. I'm, I'm sitting here with my son, Hunter Klesko, and uh, we just finished dinner, so we are just started to play the first inning uh, of game four. Um, but it's fun, you know, I – I honestly couldn't tell you. I didn't even remember that I didn't get any hits in the first two games. So we did an interview earlier on Skype, which they'll probably be airing it, whatever, during one of these games. But, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, well, game one and two, you might not want to watch with your son because you didn't get any hit. I was like, really? <laughs> that sucks. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, I do remember uh, one thing that happened is that going into it, I hit a, smoked a ball at the middle and, and uh, Omar Vizquel robs me. Mm-hmm. Make the diving play, gets up and throws me out, and I'm thinking to myself, "Am I ever going to get a hit in this World Series?" Because that, that reminded me that it took me a couple of games to get hot. But uh, little Omar Vizquel robbed me, and I was like, then, "Then I really started to panic a little bit." I was like, "Geez, this this sucks." 
Well, he robbed a lot of people throughout his career, that's for sure. But for you, you did end up getting hot and playing a pretty big part in this World Series. And before we even really get started and kind of go through some of the games and different memories or whatnot, I guess just in the outset, I mean, can you believe it's been 25 years since this World Series? No, I can't. It's just time flies, I guess, when you're when you're old and retired, right? I will take your word for it. I don't know. Time's not passing fast enough for a lot of us right now, but I, I know that. <laughs> It's the Braves had so many opportunities, it seemed like, throughout the 90s because of the success that they had. But this really a crown jewel, the crowning achievement of those great teams. And for you, before we even really get into the 95 season, I think 94 was a pretty fascinating year for you because I'm not sure if everyone remembers, but you ended up as Atlanta's left fielder because Ron Gant broke his leg and ended up getting released. And then Chipper Jones was injured in spring training that year. What was that transition like for you, being a guy who played first base, to going out to left field and kind of having to do it on the fly? Yeah, so that whole transition, you know, so 95 really, if you look at it, is my first full year of baseball, and then we won the World Series. 94 was my rookie year, but it was the strike year, and we didn't finish. So I get a call. I'm thinking I'm getting traded, right? I mean, there's the minor league system's loaded. We got prospects everywhere. You got Fred McGriff at first base, Ron Gant, all-star in left field. And, you know, I'm definitely thinking, I, and I'm stuck in the minor leagues wanting to, you know, go play somewhere, you know, preferably for the Braves, but, you know, they're just stacked everywhere. They're right. releasing guys in the minor leagues. They go on to play in the major leagues for long periods of time. And that's partly because of the good scouting, uh, partly because uh, they're great scouting and using their draft picks, but mm-hmm. it was partly because they sucked for so long that they were getting all these high-round draft picks right. also. That's true. But, <laughs> but the scouts, I, I mean, it doesn't matter. whether They're making every draft and every trade, you know, great. You know, you Chipper, Javi. Uh, myself, I mean, uh, I mean, guys like Tony Tarasco, I mean, just players a lot of uh, Braves fans don't know about that that were good prospects that got traded away to bring in some of these caliber guys over from a different team. But, uh, yeah, so my first full, full year that I played in the season was 95. But, yeah, he gets – spring training goes as it's me, Chipper Jones, and Tony Tarasco. Chipper doesn't – I don't think he's ever played outfield. I've never played outfield. And Tony Tarasco was the big arm, the speed, the average, and, and, and you know, a uh, little bit of power. And so Chipper goes down. We're all hitting right around 350, 400 in spring training at that time. Chipper goes down trying to beat out a ground ball, blows out his knee. And then it's Tony and I. Tony's a more established outfielder, but I'm more of a power guy. But Tony's just, you know, he can play the outfield. He's fast. He's got a guard. Well, he's going down the line, running down the line, and he tears his hamstring like two days, three days before we break camp. So I'm like the last guy standing, you know, I end up being, I think, I don't know, second or third of rookie of the year, had a pretty good, got a hot start. Yeah. Uh, did really well the first half. And then we went, uh, we went strike, we went strike year, my rookie year. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of stuff. So really, uh, you look back at 95 was my first full year and you started getting more, a little bit more playing time each year. I was with the Braves uh, more and more at bats. Um, but 95, I still, I didn't have a whole lot at bats. I think I hit 310 with, uh, like 23 home runs, but I didn't have a lot at bats. I had, you know, maybe 150 or 200 less at bats than everybody else on the team. So I was still more of a platoon player uh, and was most of my career in Atlanta, uh, except for my last year or two, and then went on to San Diego and started playing every day. But, you know, we had good outfielders. I mean, there was a lot of good outfielders that came. Uh, Brian Hunter was there. Uh, Devereaux was there one year. And, I mean, we had some really good uh, outfielders that needed some playing time. You know, you had all-star. Who are you going to take out? A, a guy that's got two years in or Dave Justice? Well, right. Justice is better in the outfield than me, all right? So I I just basically was kind of like the last guy with the low salary with the young guy just is just got to kind of wait for your time to get more and more at-bats. And, and Bobby did start 
slowly giving me more and more bats and more playing time. So it was great. But, uh, you know, leading up to the World Series, uh, it was just a great, great year for me, a great year for the team, great for the year for the city. And, who, you know, you always think, man, this is going to happen again and again and again with the mm-hmm. talent. But, and now you think back after you played all those years, I mean, you were the best of the best of the whole year. I mean, you, a lot of guys that play their whole career never even get that chance. So I was very blessed, and, uh, and uh, it's cool to be watching it with my son. Yeah, absolutely. And you joined a club that had been to the World Series twice already, had an incredible 1993 season. You mentioned the strike came along. And when people look back at the 90s Braves, you think of the Hall of Fame pitching staff that they had, three of those, a Hall of Fame manager. But as you mentioned yourself, Chipper Jones, Javi Lopez, and Young Braves were a big part of this 1995 championship team. Uh, What are your early memories of, I guess, meeting Chipper Jones and playing with him throughout the minors? And what really stood out to you from what you saw from the young Chipper Jones? He, I think he finally caught up with me in AAA. I was a year ahead of him. But I seen him in spring training. Uh, he just got bigger, faster, stronger every year. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of home runs in minor leagues. He didn't really fill out. He really didn't have a whole lot of uh, muscle until he started getting older. You know what I'm saying? He just, mm-hmm. he was playing shortstop and hitting a lot of doubles. But you could tell he was, as he got older, he'd get bigger, faster, stronger. Uh, and uh, just progressed, learned the game, took in the game. And just got better by, uh, around him. I mean, that's that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. He just it was just amazing how much he learned from the veterans and how much better he got uh, every year. Uh, especially from you know first on, you know he wasn't a power hitter, then he is a power hitter, and then he, then he was weaker from the right side as a hitter, and he changed that, and I didn't have any weaknesses left or right side, and you could tell he just made himself a better player every year, and and uh, it was it was fun to watch. Oh, for both you guys, getting to the majors and finding a place to play every day, that, of course, important. What was it like playing for Bobby Cox, and how did he help you fit in as you got your feet wet at the big leagues and maybe instilled a little bit of confidence in you as your career grew? Well, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I was in a different situation because, you know, there was all these veterans around me, and and I was fighting for playing time. So early on was stress for me. I was I was always fighting for more time. I was always wanting to play more couple of years I you know I think I led the team in home runs or or was the top two or three guys but I had you know 150 uh, less at bats than everybody else and so I was kind of constantly um, you know trying to fight to get in there more but you only got so much you can do you got to pay your dues kid you got to pay your dues you know so you got all these all-stars around you then you got these veterans they bring in from you know from the Yankees and you know or, or from wherever they came from so you kind of had to bite your tongue and then just put in your time and put up your numbers and slowly grind. And that was hard for me. And, uh, you know, at times, you know, Bobby and I got into it. You know, I'd be hot at the bat, and I wouldn't play for two days in a row, maybe three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go in and, you know, we just we kind of butted heads on that. But, you know, again, he respected that because he knew that I was trying to get in there every day. Or not, not every day, but most of the time. I, You know, and so um he understood where i was coming from and i understood where he was coming from and certain things and and when it comes down to it it's not about me or i him it's about winning so you got to slowly prove and you got to work your butt off and and go from there so there's stress about winning and you know that team being put together and spent a lot of money on it there was stress when chipper and hobby and i came in hey this is our first go around some of the veterans of that you know they're like hey we got to do this this is our third one you know i'm mm-hmm. We lost the first two, and so we the younger guys didn't feel that because we weren't there. We didn't have that. Of course, being nervous, that's a whole other thing. I mean, whatever you think, people ask me, what's it like going to the World Series? It's like like you dreamed of, you know, when you were a kid. I mean, it's surreal. Um, you know, it's everybody handles the pressure a little bit different, but you've got to slow yourself down. 
I just like think Joe Morgan was saying that the first couple of games I didn't get any hits. Um, and he's like, what are you going to do? I said, I got to cut my swing down. I'm just over swinging. I'm, I'm too jacked up. I don't have my, I'm, I'm chasing pitches that I don't right. normally chase swinging at bad pitches. I've got to slow down and start driving the ball up the, the other way and up the middle to get my swing back. And I mean, they see it. Cause I mean, I think 90% of the pitches they're throwing me were off speed pitches early on. And then, then I went opposite field with that home run and they started trying to pitch me in a little bit later, but you know, I just, just there's so much stuff going through your mind as a young player or even a veteran player, and there's so much adrenaline that you got to try to get back within yourself because you try to do too much, and when you try to do too much in baseball, it's not good. No, you can certainly work yourself into some serious trouble if you try to do a little bit too much at the plate or even on the mound or even out on the field as well. But either way, as things kind of came back together for the Braves and all the baseball, ending the 94 season with a strike that dragged all the way into the spring of 95, then all of a sudden it seemed like, hey, Let's do this thing. Let's get back to baseball. What were your feelings when you guys finally got word that, hey, it's time for the big leaguers to get back to work and start the 95 baseball season? There was a lot. You know, you know, there was a lot of heat, you know, and some of the guys, and you know, DJ and, and, and Glavin being real vocal, and there were some people, you know, give them a hard time in some of the papers and stuff. But, you know, those guys took care of it well and, and did as professionally as they could have. And we understood that the fans were a little bit frustrated. So there was a lot of animosity about that. And, you know, just just slowly gaining the fans' trust again, and I remember this. I remember we were driving down the highway and got pulled over. I was speeding, and uh, you know, guy pulled my license, and the guy's like, "Oh, you played for the Atlanta Braves." I'm thinking, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna get out of this mm-hmm. ticket, right?" And he comes back full ticket, and I think he might have added a couple miles an hour to that thing. Really? Yeah, and he hands me the ticket and said, "Shouldn't you guys be playing ball right about now, son?" Oh wow! Gave me the ticket. See you later. So he wasn't too happy we were on strike either. But I am here, I'm thinking, hey, I'm just a rookie. I'm just doing what I'm told to do, you know. What am right. I supposed to do, you know. So it, 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 I thought, yeah, I look back at that and laugh. But I was like, really? He's going to give me a ticket? I'm out of work. <laughs> I'm broke. <laughs> I tell you, though, that's a great story, though. When you look back on it all these years later, it's just kind of a, that moment in time of where things were at that time. And, and let's get into the postseason run because that's where you guys had an awful lot of fun, of course. You take the NLE's crown. You beat the Rockies in the NLDS. You beat the Reds in the NLCS. And that's followed by an immediate two games to none lead in the World Series. What was the mindset as the series moved back to Cleveland? Because as you mentioned, there were guys who had come close to winning this thing before and hadn't been able to do it yet. Did you sense any added pressure or sense of urgency or anything else as you guys were taking the series up north to Cleveland? Well, I mean, I, you know, you always know things, momentum change, and we learned that later on, especially when playing the Yankees. But, right. you know, any game, any momentum, big change, anything, you just, want to, you just want to keep that out of your mind and just grind it out and play hard. And, you know, here you are up two to nothing, and then you lose game three in Cleveland. Tough game. You know, made some mistakes. We made some base running mistakes. We made some errors in the field. We weren't looking. I think I texted one of the guys today. I'm like, man, I didn't realize how bad our defense was that game hmm. and our base running. We just looked sloppy. We made some errors. But, you know, that's what happens. You know, sometimes you get a little bit, again, you start playing, you start just that extra adrenaline you being in the World Series and you try to do too much with that ground ball, you come up a little bit too soon or you overthrow the ball. You know, you got guys, some of the guys in the dugout going into the bathroom throwing up between innings because they're wow. so nervous. I mean, that's real stuff you got to deal with. And, I mean, I, some of the guys haven't slept. In, I mean, you're in the World Series, you can't sleep. I mean, so you got guys playing on no sleep. You know, they didn't have Ambien back then. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of options, I guess, at that time. And really, everybody's going to deal with this different stress in different ways. But when it came down to it, things were going pretty well as far as the way you want to start a World Series. Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin pick up their wins. 
and then you guys move it back up to Cleveland. For you, that's when the series really gets cranked up. You had a memorable run against the Indians, three homers in those six games. Did it sink into you, or when did it sink in, that you were hitting these big home runs in a World Series in these big moments as a kid that I'm sure you dreamed about that quite a bit, even all the way through the minor leagues and maybe even the night before some of these happened? Yeah, I mean, it's surreal. It really is. And and you think back, and, and I know I was panicking a little bit, I and I, I, felt, I don't remember it you know, bad now, but, I mean, obviously, doing that interview, they're like, you know, well, the first two games, you might not be happy with yourself if you didn't get any hits, but I'm trying to tell everybody, you know, look, you're facing Ora Hershiser, Dennis Martinez, they're making nasty pitches on you. You're facing Cy Young Award winners in the World Series just about every time you turn around. And mm-hmm. just like those guys, they're facing Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz. And I think I looked up Manny Ramirez and Jim Tomei in that first, I don't know. I'm just going on what I've been watching. I know that between the two, it hadn't had but one or two hits the whole series so far. Now, they're just, Maddox and Glavin were just carving those guys up and, Good pitching not usually shuts down good hitting, and that's what happened in this Cleveland series. They had a bomb squad. I mean, they're talking about, you know, that team hit like 290, the highest batting average for a team in, you know, 50-something years. Yeah. But just remember, <laughs> they weren't facing those guys. They were facing uh, some other guys. So they ain't going to do that. When the Reds, I think the Reds hit like 116 against us that prior series when we swept the Reds before going to the World Series. And tell you what, though, looking back, you ask any one of our players – uh, which was the toughest team that we played, and we battled the Colorado Rockies. That team was a bomb squad. They can hit. The pitchers, a lot of our starters did not like pitching in Colorado. They didn't have the confidence. They didn't mm-hmm. fill the ball. That team gave us a hard time. We had to come back. Chipper hit a big home run there. Uh, I had some big hits there. Some other. We had to battle for everyone in Colorado. That team gave us a run. And remember, that's only a five-game series. Right. No, it certainly was, and it was kind of setting the stage by fighting through those games. Of course, you mentioned you swept the Reds. You get up to Cleveland by the time you come home. You're up three games to two in the World Series. Tom Glavin's on the mound. You mentioned what he's capable of, Greg Maddox is capable of. How much confidence did the team have with him on the mound for that night, for that game, and what was it like to watch him work in game six? That was amazing. You could tell, you know, when Tommy's on, you can tell right away. And most of the time, if a team got to Tommy, he's in the first inning. And I don't know, he's, he tried so many things over the years, you know, throwing a longer bullpen, throwing a shorter bullpen. But a lot of the really good pitchers, um, a lot of big-time pitchers uh, like that, usually got in trouble using the first day. And I think maybe just because they were trying to jump on the fastballs early on and and they and then, you know, vice versa or whatever. You know, I think Randy Johnson, some of these guys, if they got hit, usually got hit early. And, but if Tommy got you and he was feeling it and he had the feel for it, you know, that late movement and that change-up work and it didn't matter and, you know, just watching back, it's funny because I honestly can't tell you a whole lot about other than just a couple of things. It's been so long ago, then so I'm enjoying watching this uh, exactly what happened. But he he was on and he was feeling it, and he just wanted a run or two. And and we did the interview the other day and talked about, hey, just just give me one, guys. I just need one, you know. And and they asked me if I heard that, and I was like, well, really, I didn't because it's so loud there, and you know, there's a lot of noise in the dugout. I know a lot of the players heard it. But, uh, you know, I might have been on the other end of the dugout or I might have been down in the tunnel or something trying to get some coffee or something. But uh, who knows? Who knows? But uh, that was pretty cool, Um, that game and the way he pitched. And um, Earl Hershiser and Dez Martinez, those guys pitched their butts off. I mean, mean, even Kenny Hill, I mean, he's Mm -hmm. nasty. We faced good pitching. You look at those offenses, and I know that some of the announcers are talking about horror. 
you know, our offense wasn't that good. I mean, I was, I was like laughing. I was like, what do you mean we weren't that good? Look at that lineup. I, mean, I, I, I don't buy those comments. And I've been listening to it, and it's funny because now, you know, 25 years later, we know the kind of season that you guys had, A, and then B, who some of these players are. It was a little bit strange to hear that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think they were just looking at the, I mean, our average was down a little bit there. I think our mm. team average is like, what, 252 or 262. And that's even surprised me because Mark Cease, I think, played a little bit hurt that year. But he's yeah. usually like a, you know, a 280 guy. He looked a lot. Javi Lopez, 280 guy. You know, DJ, uh, myself, I think I was a career 280 guy, 279, 280 guy. I mean, I was like, what? I, I think I hit 310 that year. But I was like, why is this? But it, and then look back, we had – Lousy was hurt, and then Belliard was, and they were looking at Belliard, and Belliard's average down, and then they're looking at some stuff. I was like, that's not normal, but I, we had a really good hitting team. But their team, people didn't even know. Who, they didn't know who Manny Ramirez and Jim Tomei were. Are you kidding me? And Barga, I mean, Barga had put up some big numbers, but Tomei and Ramirez are just young. Like, it was just like me and Javi Lopez. No one really knew it. And then you look back now, it's like, you know, uh, they carved up Manny. I mean, they, they were carving up Manny and Jim I mean, almost that whole series. Yeah, and they most definitely were. And for Tom Glavin, carving everybody up in game six, of course, he said he just needed a run or two. Well, he got that run courtesy of David Justice, who had kind of gotten on the fans' bad side with some of his comments during the World Series. David was even getting booed before he hit that game six home run. Did you hear his comments before the game or at any point? And what did you guys think when he came through in the clutch with that huge home run? You know what? Being that you mentioned that, I know that there's some strike comments with Tommy and DJ and stuff like that. But I think now that thinking back, I think David had mentioned something about the fans back from Cleveland. Cleveland was loud. The fans were going crazy. And this was our third World Series. And, you know, in in Georgia, people have a tendency to be laid back a little bit, right? And that's Mm -hmm. just the Southern mentality. And I think David, DJ, was just calling him out a little bit say, hey, we're in the World Series. You know, don't let us, the commentators are saying something about that. Atlanta wasn't really that loud. And I think DJ was just calling him out like, hey, let's get excited. And I think they – I mean, he might have went about it the wrong way, but, yeah, they didn't like it too much, I promise you. Yeah, well, they did love him after that home run, though. What were your memories of that? Because, like you said, if Glavin's dialed in, you got him to run. It seemed to be all he needed. Yeah, I mean, I mean who would have thought? Yeah, I mean, with these big offensive lineups, in my, in my opinion, going back, both teams had it. Even Lemke was a playoff machine. He got hits in all, you know, years. But uh, you would never think the games would be that tight. But then, again, you look back, so, okay, the, the way these guys were pitching when they were on, Mad Dog, when he was on, it was one or two runs or less. Same thing with Glad. When he's on, it's going to be, you know, they're not going to get more than a couple of runs. And then, but with that Cleveland offense, man, you make any mistakes, you open the door a little bit, you know, they just go. I mean, to be honest with you, I can't believe we didn't have a lot of big, if you look back now, the big offenses and the big names, I can't believe that we didn't have any, like one or two big blowout games where it was like, you know, 10 to 9 or, or, you know, a 12 to 8 or something like that with these big offenses. And Albert Bell hitting 50 home runs mm-hmm. and Byerga you know, hitting 340. Just But our pitching shut them down. I mean, you look back at now, it got Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. Of course, they didn't get any runs, you know, but they still had to make their pitches in that situation against probably, honestly, one of the best lineups I've ever seen in my life. Uh, you look back at the numbers, and, and those guys, Mad Dog Lav, uh, and Smolty, uh, Smolty, he didn't have a feel for the ball that one night, he said, but he still pitched pretty good as Sly was on. Uh, he had some bad breaks, uh, in my opinion. He didn't really hit the ball that hard on him. He had some C&I singles and some bad breaks, but uh, I think I thought they all pitched good. Yeah, well, Glavin took care of the first eight innings in game six. Mark Wohlers closed it out. Marquise Grissom runs down the final out in left center field at Atlanta Fulton <laughs> County Stadium. 
Ryan, can you walk me through what the ninth inning felt like from your vantage point and, of course, the celebration that followed? I mean, that right there. So, I think going in, I, I broke up the double play going after – going in this back when it was legal when you had to break up double play, you could go after the guy as long as you make an attempt at the bag. I tore the ligament on my left thumb, retore it, which I heard it early in the year. So, I'm playing – with a torn ligament on my left hand, I wow. think I get a couple of bats and I come out once we get the lead. But I am—I can't tell you what I'm taking or for my hand. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> put it this way, it was about numb and I couldn't feel my thumb. Yeah, man, I know that I was probably going to have to get surgery in the off season or just let it—you know—be out for a long time. But normal situation, I'm done uh, for the season or done for at least uh, a month or so because that ligament is definitely torn in my hand. But it's the sixth game of the World Series; you got to play, right? So you right. you tape it up, you take some uh, Advil or whatever they gave me and uh, you take as much as you can and, and get it out for as long as you can. And I was in a terrible amount of pain. We get the lead. I come out for defense. So I come off the bench. When we win that game, I'm flying off the bench and jumping for joy with my glorified air cast on my thumb. A tremendous celebration that followed there. And I'm sure you've seen it. You ended up on the cover of sports illustrated right in the middle of things by the time it was said and done. So for the Braves, for yourself, for the guys that came up through the organization that had just kind of joined what was going to be an incredible run throughout the decade of the 90s. This has to rank right at the top of the great memories of your time in, with the Atlanta Braves, does it not? A hundred percent. I mean, you, obviously, you, you just don't know. You, know, you think you're going to win more, but you get you enjoy the moment. And I did, we definitely did. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I had a lot of friendships and uh, seen a lot of guys go to the Hall of Fame and learned a lot and uh, uh, just enjoyed playing with all those guys. And, uh, going to enjoy watching some more of the game tonight uh, that they're airing. All right. Well, let me let you get back to that. Ryan, I really appreciate all of your time and your memories and the stories and the laughs that you were able to share about what was an incredible time in Atlanta Braves baseball and one I'm sure you look back on fondly. Thank you so much, and I look forward to catching you soon, hopefully around the ballpark when we've got baseball back in our lives again. Yes, hopefully soon. They're talking about it. So uh, anytime, Grant, is uh, good talking to you, buddy, and look forward to seeing you. And now it's time to take a look at what's been happening across Major League Baseball over the past week or so. Of course, we're sitting around waiting to determine what the 2020 season is going to look like and when we might get a 2020 season started. But there's been a little bit of movement in that realm, if you want to call it that, or on that beat. And to help me talk about all of that and to go through some of the big stories from this week, I want to welcome Bill Rowland into the show. And uh, Bill, another week, not so much uh, moving closer to knowing when we're going to be playing baseball, but we're getting a little bit of clarity on what kind of things Major League Baseball is talking about when they actually do get these teams back on the field and what a 2020 season might look like. Yeah, it's nice and uh, good to be with you again, Grant. It's nice to actually be talking about. It looks more and more likely that there will be a 2020 season and not just uh, you know people kind of throwing it out there of how they could pull it off. It right. actually looks like they're going to try to pull it off. Well, I hope that they're able to, and I know that this is going to allow for some outside-the-box thinking, which may not necessarily be a bad thing for the sport, as we've talked about many times. Let me kind of frame up what exactly it is that Major League Baseball could be looking at, according to the USA Today report by Bob Nightingale that surfaced this week. Bill, we're talking about three divisions of 10 teams, a departure from AL and NL and the normal divisions that we've seen since realignment a couple of decades ago. This would be, I think, a radical departure for Major League Baseball, 10 teams, a mix of American League and National League teams in an East Division, a Central Division, and a West Division. Now, the plus for this that you didn't have in the previous iterations of plans that had everybody, say, in Arizona or in Florida or maybe floating Texas into the mix is all of these teams would play in their major league parks, but they would only play against the other nine teams in their division. 
So it'd be severely reduced travel, which I guess is a plus when we're talking about ways to combat the COVID-19 pandemic that we're dealing with, or maybe handle the aftermath of it as it ramps down. But this is something that for me is some serious outside the box thinking. What was your impression when you saw the three teams of 10 with the teams staying within their divisions, but getting to play in their major league ballparks? Yeah, if they could pull it off and have them play in their ballparks, that's probably the best case scenario for Major League Baseball. Now, is it the best case scenario for the players, for the umpires, for um, staff? That's what they're going to have to talk to the doctors and the people that study this better than any of us do is whether or not they could pull this off. Because, again, you're still talking about, if you look at the East Division, you're still talking about the Yankees and the Mets there in New York. Boston, whose numbers have continued to go up. Philadelphia, who's had their numbers go up, all being in the same division. Now, these guys aren't traveling on the Excella train <laughs> and, and, mm-hmm. and doing all that. They're, they're going on their private jets and everything, so it's a little bit easier, but it's still a situation where you're having some of these teams and some of the hot spots um, of this COVID-19 still going on. But again, anything that can get us closer to baseball in 2020, I'm all for it. Yeah, and I think that we're going to have to see this kind of outside-the-box thinking when they come up with a solution for it because the more that I look at all of this and the more that I hear, it sounds like you just can't really expect for there to be regular sporting events happening with fans in the stands and everything going back to normal the way that it had been prior to all of this breaking down. But before you even get to that point is, is there a way to have a season and what would that look like? How long would it be? That's what Major League Baseball is trying to figure out is how exactly they could execute a season. And from a logistical perspective and a health perspective, which has to be completely intertwined at this point, what is going to make the most sense and what's going to be safe and allow for this to happen. And this is the kind of stuff that if you were to have just thrown this out there under normal circumstances, you'd be laughed right out of the room to say, hey, we need to just realign these divisions. Let's blow out the leagues. Let's do this. Let's do that. That just tells you what level of thinking that they're having to get to to try and make a season happen. I don't mind the idea of doing this, especially if we're talking about a shortened season, which I would assume at this point, everybody in every scenario that they're pitching at this point can't have much to do with a 162-game season anymore. But I, I like these divisions insofar as geographically speaking, they allow for a little bit of continuity from what these teams are probably used to with some of their divisional foes. The brave side of things is because of the geographical consideration, I guess, with Pittsburgh being much closer to all those East teams, Pittsburgh would go back to the East, which I could make an argument they always should have been there, and the Braves would end up in this central division. And as I was joking about on Twitter, it would be pretty fascinating if the Braves could win a central division title because they've also won a West Division crown, and some East Division crowns as well. And they would be the first team to win a division title, East, Central, and West. But uh, look, that kind of stuff kind of goes back burner. But that's the kind of thing that, as someone following the Braves and trying to see how this is going to affect Atlanta, was at least amusing, if nothing else. Yeah, it's interesting, too, if you look at the Central. Atlanta is way south of every other team that they're talking about putting them in. So they're to me, they're kind of the, the outlier to all of this, which is a little strange, but I guess it makes the most sense how they're doing it. I mean, a lot of the stuff, I think those teams that are kind of in the Midwest, and I don't put Atlanta necessarily obviously in the Midwest, but when you start mixing them all up, I mean, you've got Texas and Houston are both in the West, 
But then you've also got Kansas City that's in the Central and St. Louis in the Central. They just didn't. Mm -hmm. It seems like Atlanta would just ended up being one of those teams that they're like, oh, shoot, where are we going to put them in? Because Tampa and Miami have to stick together because they're there in the state of Florida. It's easy. But they're far away from every other team that's in the East Division, too. If you look at it, it's all the Northern Corridor there. So I think some of the teams just kind of got plucked and put in and said, well, somebody's going to have to be the southernmost team or somebody's going to have to be the easternmost team of whatever division they're in. And it seems to me Atlanta kind of got stuck that way in the Central. Yeah, but I think it's okay more or less just based on the fact that if I was looking at this geographically speaking, which there's not a perfect scenario, just keeping in mind that all the way up until 1993, the first, what, 24 years or whatever it was, 25 years of divisional play, the Braves were in the National League West. I know, I know. That's odd in and of itself. And this is not because, oh, well, when they were in Milwaukee, they were further west. No, there were no divisions back then. It, that was NL and AL and win your pennant and go to the World Series, and that was all it was. So it's kind of interesting insofar as this is something that is completely a departure from what baseball has typically been doing. But I can understand why Pittsburgh would end up in the Eastern Division, especially when you start to look at geographically how close they are to all those Eastern Division teams. Not that they're that far from the Central Division teams either, but they're just closer there. And for Atlanta, I think that keeping in mind these teams are flying on charter flights and that'll all be fine. These are going to be nonstop flights to wherever you're going. You're not going to go sit at gate such and such and wait for your zone to be called so that you can board your plane with, you know, all of humanity that might be traveling. I mean, there's so many different things about this that are kind of streamlined already for how these teams travel that I don't really worry about what the draw was for what division that you're in. But it was strange to see that the Braves and Pirates were the only clubs that flipped from their normal divisions, but I can understand why it happened. It just logistically from the the spot geographically where they're sitting made a lot more sense for Pittsburgh to get into the East than to remain into the Central. But Atlanta would have been just fine in the East. However, I will say this, the Braves, by getting into the Central, might have avoided a much tougher divisional matchup in what that Super East, I'll call it, is going to look like. Yeah, and you look at this stuff too. I think they looked at it a lot of ways of the condensed season less off days. So you're not going to have teams. They couldn't keep them in their yeah. probably regular divisions if they were going to tighten it up because you couldn't have the travel day where like, okay, well, they're going to have to get out of here and fly all the way. You know, still Boston to Miami is not a quick flight, but it's a lot easier than, say, going Boston to Houston or something or of, LA, of that yeah. regard. Yeah. But you look at the way they've got it designed and set up. To me, for Atlanta sitting there in the central – Probably their biggest threat, is it the Brewers and the Cardinals? I mean, Atlanta and Minnesota are by far the two best teams in that central division yeah. where you look at the East, Yankees, Nationals, maybe you throw the Red Sox in there. But the West, I think, has more of the better teams perhaps than any of the other places because you've got the Dodgers in there. You've also got, of course, Texas and Houston. I think Texas is going to be a lot better than a lot of people think. But uh, the Dodgers and Houston being in there, and those are two of the top, what, four or five teams in baseball in mm -hmm. that same division. Yeah, and let's look at this real quick just for folks that are listening and may not have really committed to memory who's going to be in what division. But again, it does break down mostly, and with the exception of Atlanta and Pittsburgh, as the normal divisions just merging the AL and the NL versions of the divisions to make these 10-team supergroups, if you will. In the East, it would be the Yankees, the Mets, the Red Sox, the Nationals, the Orioles, the Phillies, the Pirates, the Blue Jays, the Rays, and the Marlins. 
When I look at that grouping, obviously the Yankees have been favored by a lot of people to be one of, if not the very best team in baseball, seemingly annually now. And so I think that they would probably be the club that is the favorite, if you will. But you got the defending World Series champions in there. You've also got a team like the Tampa Bay Rays that in the last few right. years, they just seem to find a way to, no pun intended, crack the code and keep themselves relevant, if nothing else, and on the cusp of perhaps making a real push through October because I've watched that team the last few years and been pretty impressed by them. And then, yeah, you've got the Red Sox, you've got the Mets, who have a really great pitching staff, even without Noah Syndergaard. That's a, a big deal. The Phillies, I think, will be a competitive club. And then there's a few clubs, like the Jays are young and up and coming. And then you look at the Marlins, of course, the Orioles, not going to be great. The Pirates, I don't think, going to be very great either. But overall, you've got four or five really tough teams in that division, whereas when you do look at that Central, it's the Cubs and the White Sox, the Brewers, yep. the Cardinals, the Reds, the Indians, the Twins, the Braves, then the Tigers and Royals are in there. So a couple of teams that probably going to take some lumps no matter how many games they were playing this year. But a pretty competitive division, much improved White Sox, much improved Reds, still a tough Indians team, I think. And then you start to look at the Cardinals and the Cubs and the Brewers as playoff teams along with the Braves and the Twins. That's a pretty good grouping. Then out west, you have the two L.A. teams, the Dodgers and Angels. You've got the Giants and the Athletics, the Padres, the Diamondbacks, the Rockies, then the Rangers, the Astros, and the Mariners. The thing that really jumped out to me about the west is putting the Dodgers and the Astros in the same division to play all the time, given all the drama that has happened over the past, well, few years, but at least the last few months. Yeah, and, and also you look at it in the east, as you mentioned, you've got the O's and the Marlins who are going to be terrible. In the central... You've got the Tigers and the Royals who are both going to be terrible. terrible. The West, I don't know that you have that team that you look at and go, they're only going to win if it was a regular season. They might win 55 games. There are a couple teams that aren't necessarily going to be contenders, but I don't see two bottom feeders in that division. I think that division is going to be fascinating to watch kind of the middle grouping there to see if they do do I don't know. I'm thinking four teams from each division. They do 12 or something. I don't know how they're going to do the, yeah. the playoffs, but that's my guess is that they'll they'll figure out some way to do a 12-team playoff thing. That's going to be fascinating to, to behind the Dodgers and Astros of who the other two teams are going to be to fight their way through because you can make an argument for almost any of them. Can't do that in the East and the Central. You can pretty much forget about Kansas City, forget about Detroit, forget about Baltimore and Miami in the East. The rest of it may be competitive, but that's going to be fascinating in the West. As you mentioned, Dodgers and Astros and then everybody else trying to fight their way into the playoffs. Yeah, I think it will be pretty tough. I don't think that the Giants are going to be particularly good. I don't think that the Mariners are going to be particularly good. If you're looking at the club that might have been flirting with a 90-plus loss season going in, I think the Mariners are probably on that list. I don't know that the Giants are altogether that bad, but they're not great. And then, of course, the Rangers, I think, are – they're kind of somewhere in the middle for me. They're a team that should be better than they have been the last few years, but for whatever reason, they've kind of slid down in the standings and been trying to find their way back up. So it's not necessarily a meat grinder out there, but when you're as top-heavy as having clubs like the Dodgers and the Astros in one division and then throw in a club that seems, again, much like the Rays, the Oakland Athletics seem to find a way to be a very competitive club every year. The Padres, I think, are going to continue to get better, in my opinion. Now, the Rockies are a club that I don't think they're going to be particularly good, but when you go to Coors Field, that can really damage your pitching staff for a few days. But long story short, a better Diamondbacks team, it's tough. 
but again, I think the biggest hurdles for teams coming out of that division, of course, are going to be the LA Dodgers and the Houston Astros. The Central, though, I look at the Braves and Twins, but I won't discount the Brewers, the Cardinals, even the Cubs and the White Sox as being clubs that are going to be really tough. And I am fascinated to see if the Cincinnati Reds, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast, yeah. are a club that takes that next big step forward because I think they've got the personnel to do it. And then when I look in the East, I like the Yankees, obviously. The Nationals have proven it last year and are going to be on the path to get right back there again this year. But I do like the Tampa Bay Rays as a club that is a bit of a sleeper that, yeah, they've been getting to the playoffs in recent years. They've been making that push. They've been very good. But can they slay the giant, if you will, when you start talking about a club like the Yankees? When they have this set up the way they do with the three divisions, 10 each, to me, if this ends up being what they're going to do, it lends itself just because I think baseball more than anything, and maybe it's the way my brain works as well. It's, it's all about even math. Mm-hmm. Seems to me that you'd end up playing everybody else 10 times, five home, five away. That gets you to 90. That's a pretty good number if they're going to get started, say, July 1st that you get a 90-game regular season all against the other teams in your division, and we go from there. And that would get you through probably to about mid-October when you can start the playoffs. And and I know they've still talked about, hey, if it gets into cold weather, that we might have to do some things in a neutral site in the South. If you know the Yankees are one of the teams that are there, you can't play baseball in December uh, in New York. So to me – a 90-game sprint wouldn't be too bad, and you still might be able to get your playoffs in and stay in those home parks. Yeah, I wouldn't hate that either. And as far as some of the other scenarios that go around this, at least from the report from USA Today, 18 to 21 days before the start of the season for clubs to go back to their spring training sites and ramp the conditioning back up. And I don't know if it's going to be any amount of exhibition games, if clubs are going to arrange those, or if they'll just play a bunch of inter-squad games and just look to get themselves started. But there would be a return to Florida and Arizona, at least under this plan. Now, it's important to go back to the disclaimer that we put on all of these scenarios that are being floated out there, and that is that these are talks that are ongoing. MLB clearly is hoping to not have to quarantine its players and things of that nature. That's a huge thing for the player contingent, being away from your families for four or five months. Some guys will be willing to do that. For other guys, that may not be as easy to ask for for four to five or or more months, whatever the case may be for how long the season is. But the longer this goes on and the further that this start date is away, I do think we're looking at an 80, a 90-game season. And then really, I think ideally, trying to get those playoffs started by the second week, maybe the middle of October at the latest, because I don't think anybody wants to see the World Series get pushed all the way into Thanksgiving weekend, for example. No, I'm with you. And 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 I don't think baseball necessarily wants to have to push it all the way into late November, early December if they if they you know play the season. So I, I think again, you get them back to spring training sites by June first to June tenth, somewhere in there. You get them started for the major league baseball regular season, July first, July fourth, whatever weekend that is. You play 90 games, July, August, September, with a couple of off days, you know, as they can work them out. And maybe with this scenario, you don't need to do double headers. You could still get a 90 game regular season in where you play everybody else 10 times. That's going to get you right about where they normally would start. It's going to be early October. Now, if you expand out the playoffs a little bit with this, then you're going to have to figure out with three divisions, well, who's going to get the bye? Um, so there's ways that they can do it, but I think they can have this done first week in November, 
and everybody will be happy and 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 thrilled that they got the season in. And and I saw Dave Roberts of the Dodgers talk about it. There's not going to be any asterisk. Everybody's going to have the same advantages and disadvantages. Yep. So just go play, and whoever wins it, wins it. Yeah, and I don't think we can spend too much time wringing our hands or, or clutching our pearls or whatever the, the cliche might be for – oh, well, this isn't a normal season under normal circumstances and such and such team's title won't be worth as much. No, I think a lot of people are going to be pretty happy to be back out there competing again and getting to and winning a World Series while you may not have gone through the same marathon that it's been in the past. Given everything that's going on, I I think there's a sufficient amount of, I don't even want to call it just pressure, but there's a sufficient amount of outside influence going on with how people are trying to just live their lives right now that, everybody's going to be ratcheted up to 11 on the scale when it comes to wanting to get back out there, win a title, kind of get back to normal and compete again. And hopefully we're going to be able to do that. It's just one of those things where this season is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen, but all of this is being done in hopes that there can be a season and keeping that optimism going right now, I think is something that's keeping a lot of people going as we just try to figure out what the best steps are to remain safe and keep people healthy and try to get on the other side of this COVID-19 pandemic. So another interesting, we'll call it a scenario that Major League Baseball could be talking through, according to this report, and certainly one worth dissecting a little bit here on the show, but not the only news that's been going on in Major League Baseball this week. A couple of topics that I would say rapid fire, but I know we're going to talk a little bit about both of them uh, more than just a quick yes or no answer. But Uh, This report that Major League Baseball's Players Association is pushing back on this shortened draft, I thought that was pretty interesting because, you know, the players have got to kind of pick and choose their battles on where they're really going to dig in their heels. But I think they recognize that a five-round draft may not be the best thing for the sport. Ownership on the other side seems to be taking a little bit of a different approach, Bill. Yeah, it's interesting because if you're preparing for the draft, if you're one of the people that has to sit there and you're the director of scouting or you're even just a local scout or whatever it is, and you hear rumors, oh, there's only going to be a five-round, a 10-round, maybe even 15-round draft, well, all of a sudden you're kind of cutting down your your workload a little bit. I mean, there's no baseball being played anyway, but putting together your draft board it's a lot different if you know there's only going to be 10 rounds as compared to 40, which is what it normally is. You're talking about 1,200-plus players that you've got to kind of you know, fit in depending on what your section of the country is. Now, if it ends up being just 10 rounds, well, that's 300 players. You know, Maybe you only need your top 300 to 350 players on a draft board. So there's, there's a lot of variance in everything that goes into this. But I also think it's tough for those players that are sitting there and wondering if they should think about coming back for another year of of college baseball. Or if you're a high school senior, do you think about going to college instead? Because as you and I talked about off the air, there's a huge difference between being a 16, 15, 16-year-old junior in high school and then having that year where you maybe grow three or four inches. You put on 30, 40 pounds of of muscle, you get stronger, bigger, faster, whatever it may be. And now you didn't play baseball at all your senior year. So scouts don't know that. I think there's going to be a lot of kids that maybe would not have gone on to college to play baseball that will do it because they're just not going to be sure, or they may not even get drafted at all. There's definitely an air of uncertainty. I think that's surrounding the draft right now and whether it's what high school players are deciding when it comes to, Hey, do I look to be drafted and sign, and that's my number one goal, or am I looking at going to college because of said uncertainty? And then you start looking at what the draft is. 
that to me is, I think, going to be one of the biggest sticking points, if you will, for guys trying to make that decision. Because, yeah, they agreed to a framework that the draft would be between five and 40 rounds. So basically it's a big, ambiguous statement that they had or agreement that they had. But Major League Baseball came back and was pitching a 10-round draft. And then you can sign undrafted players at an unlimited basis for $20,000 and no more. So obviously guys could sign for less. But So what we look at when you start thinking about the player pool of what they're bringing in is – you could bring the same amount of players into your organization it, with good scouting. You could bring in the same amount of quality players in theory. However, you're really handicapping the ability for the players to be compensated and to receive the bonuses as normal that they would have under the old draft guidelines. And uh, the big reason for this, the motivating factor for this, is that you know owners can cite not being able to generate as much revenue this year due to the loss of games and all the things that come with that. And thus, this becomes another part of cutting a line and a budget sheet down to try to fit things into making that a little bit more palatable for the owners. And for the player side of things, I'm sure they recognize that, but I'm sure everybody recognizes that these are uncertain times and these are unprecedented times when it comes to the business of baseball and obviously when it comes to what's going on in our regular everyday life. So they've got a lot to sort out here and it goes well beyond how many rounds are going to be in the draft, but that's a pretty big sticking point. I think that could change the trajectory of a lot of careers for young players in high school and also in college, because if you're in college, I mean, do you go ahead and enter the draft and sign and move on because you don't know when you're going to get back on the diamond when it comes to when are collegiate sports going to come back? Like how long are these guys going to sit out in any scenario without thinking, Hey, this may be my shot to go play professional baseball. I better take it. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think you go back to talking about, let's just say it's 10 rounds, 15 rounds, whatever it may be. And then you can sign, but you can't sign for any more than $20,000. Well, a kid looking at that may say, you know what, I'll come back for my senior year of college right. or I'll go to my freshman year of college because next year when they do have a full draft, maybe I can make a little bit more money than just the 20000 that they're going to throw at me as the most that they can throw at me as an undrafted guy. Whereas if I get uh, a year and I can prove myself, maybe I end up going in round 12 next year and I'm probably going to get a little bit more than $20,000 and I'll feel better about my situation than, oh, well, they threw $15,000 towards me. I'm going to go to you know rookie ball or whatever, and if I wash out, they're not going to care because they don't have anything invested in me. Well, obviously, for the guys that do go to college, they're going to have to stay for at least a couple of years before they're draft eligible. So there is no one and done when it comes to the draft in college baseball and professional baseball. So some different things, some apples and oranges maybe for what people might think of when they do think of the draft of, oh, well, I'll just go next year. Well, when you make that decision to go to college, that delays your draft eligibility a few years. So just something interesting to look at as some of these guys make their decision. And of course, I think something interesting to continue to monitor and talk about is what will the draft look like? But from the report by Evan Drellich and the athletic that went through a lot of this, the draft is going to happen in June. What it's going to look like though, is anybody's guess as far as the number of rounds and things of that nature. Meanwhile, one other little tidbit I want to get to, I want to get your reaction on this bill is that the major league baseball umpires association might be feeling the squeeze just like everybody else, including the players are feeling when it comes to compensation for what would be a shortened season uh, report, again, from The Athletic that came out at the end of the week, that those two sides are trying to figure out what exactly a decrease in pay would look like for the umpires in order to get them out on the field and call the game. And 
they are not in the same bargaining posture as the players are. Major League Baseball wants to cut their salaries by 35%. Meanwhile, 20% is what the umpires are offering. They're going to have to figure out a way to bridge this gap, I think. And that's just another thing that you put on the list of logistics. I'll keep using that word to make baseball happen because I don't think the robot umpires are showing up this year. No, I hope they don't show up this year. That that may be the only leverage that the umpires have is that the robot umpires aren't ready and they're not very good anyway. Um, look, I, I think if the players are having to sit and take a, a, a bit of a pay cut because they're not playing a 162-game uh, schedule, um, I think the umpires, in good faith, and they've offered 20%, which I think is reasonable, um, they're going to have to take a pay cut. I understand that, that they're not paid by the game, but they still have to look at it and say, this is an unprecedented situation. This is not something that's going to happen every year. And if they can get it in writing that their salaries will resume with a full 2021 season, then I don't think it's a big deal uh, for them to, to have to take uh, you know 20%. 35 seems a little aggressive, but I'm sure that the owners threw that out there knowing that they could back off and make themselves look a little bit better. Um, but I think everybody involved in this has to look at it and say, hey, you know what? Yes, it stinks that salaries need to be cut. It stinks that there's not going to be as much money for everybody. But in order to make this happen, you know, look, 80%, you know, 75% of your salary is better than 0% of your salary. And if you're a major league umpire, it's not like you can go out and walk across the street if you work at IBM and suddenly go work for Hewlett Packard. Mm-hmm. You can't do that as a major league umpire, so you are kind of stuck in the sense that, you know what, you're not going to be able to just walk across the street and go to a different company because uh, Major League Baseball says, hey, look, you got to take a a 25% pay cut. Yeah, important to note on this, and we're not going to get into reviewing the quality of some of the umpires that we're talking about, but they are necessary to have the game in its current iteration to happen because, again, we're not in the place where there are going to be robot umpires and Uh, replay officials and whatever else that are going to be making these calls without umpires being out on the field. And honestly, we can pie in the sky some of that stuff when you're frustrated about bad calls, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. That being a totally different discussion for another time, when you do look at the pay situation the umpires are looking at, 35% pay reduction Major League Baseball is thrown out right now toward the umpire side of things, which is offering a 20% reduction. However, if they can't agree to something, in the not-too-distant future, they will not be paid until play resumes. And that, I think, is something that they're going to have to keep in mind because, again, leverage right now, the optics of this as well because, you know, they're not making as much as the players. Umpire salaries, if you're curious, over $100,000 for rookie guys, up to over $400,000 for some of the more senior officials that we're talking about, and obviously some other bonuses and per diems and things that go in that. These are not necessarily the guys that are the richest in all of the sport. But you've got to think about it from the overall perspective of everybody financially is taking an inventory of how exactly this thing has been affecting them or could be affecting them. And that's something that they're going to have to take a long look at. And when all of your negotiations are in the public eye, this is just another little bit of scrutiny for the league, for the umpires, and for everybody else to have some good old-fashioned hand-wringing about. Yeah, I think they'll be able to sit down and come to an agreement because coming to an agreement is the best-case scenario for both sides. As you mentioned, Major League Baseball is not going to want to dip down and promote some AAA guys to fill in because the Major League umpires decide that they're not going to come back. And the Major League umpires don't want to have to do that either because 
Well, quite frankly, if some of these AAA guys come up and do a better job, you could find yourself out of a job the next year, and I don't think they want that to go on. Yeah, and that's something that's already happened before when the umpires really wanted to push things and did a mass resignation, and then Major League Baseball essentially went around that. And then some guys ended up being locked out for good and never being able to resume their careers. And that happened quite a while back. And I don't want to get into a history lesson of what umpires have been going through as far as their labor side is concerned. But one other note that is interesting for the umpires that does not have the same ramifications for the players is umpires are paid year-round. They are not paid six months during the season, seven months during the season like the players are. So that's just important to keep in mind and something that's an ongoing cost that's on the the payroll, I guess, of the league to figure out right now. And it's on the docket, so to speak. So just something else to keep in mind, not something to sit here and cast aspersions on some of the worst of the worst umpires that really frustrate people. But from the business of baseball perspective, a whole lot of plates are spinning in that Major League Baseball office, and they're going to have to keep them spinning for quite a while. And in some cases, Bill, I guess they're going to have to select the right plate to have spinning when it's time to play baseball again. Yeah, hopefully they can keep everything uh, in order and they can get what they need to get done in order to get us back to playing baseball. Again, whether it's the divisions that we talked about, three divisions of 10, and you're playing in your home park but in front of no fans, or if they decide to go back to their an original plan of just Arizona and Florida in different spots, whatever it may be, let's just hope in the next couple of weeks we hear that they're going to be sending guys back to spring training in June and that we're going to be starting opening day in July. Well, I'm hoping to hear that and looking forward to the day when we are able to get back to having baseball in our lives, but hopefully it's at a time in which we're all feeling a lot safer about where we are as a country and where we are in the world as well, and not just the world of baseball. So, Bill, a lot of things we got through there. Appreciate your time as always. Enjoy chopping it up with you. Yeah, absolutely. You guys have a great weekend, and I look forward to uh, doing it again next week. Well, that'll do it for this episode of From the Diamond. As always, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews appreciated. Be sure to tell a friend if you like what you heard on the podcast. Definitely appreciate you spreading the good word. Also, you can connect with the show on social media. Find it on Twitter at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley on Twitter, and Bill is at Bill Rowland on Twitter as well. On Instagram, at FromTheDiamond, no underscores, where the show can be found. And I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram. And, of course, every episode of the show and so much more is up at FromTheDiamond.com. Once again, just want to say thanks to my special guest, Ryan Klesko, for checking in to talk about the 1995 World Series champion Atlanta Braves and to Bill Rowland for helping me get through what was a very interesting chat about what Major League Baseball could look like when the 2020 season gets underway. And my thanks as always to you for making From the Diamond part of your weekend or whenever you listen to this show. It is very much appreciated. We'll be back at you next week with some all-new Braves and baseball talk. And until then, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.